violent assaults. With all that had happened that day, he allowed his emotions to get the better of him. You're listening to the news on RTHK. For the last three to five years. Foreign financial services is known to be very tough. And traders trading all sorts of things. Volatility in the foreign exchange market. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. U.S. stocks rebound amid a rally in oil and optimism on Greece. MSCI has deferred its inclusion of A-shares while it irons things out with regulators. And the World Bank has dropped its global forecast to 2.8%, below its 3% prediction in January. And SARS memories sent Hong Kong markets into a premature panic. The Hang Seng Index dived as much as 1.5% yesterday before pairing some losses towards the end. We'll talk about the markets uh, this morning with Tempest Investments John Schofield, then EY Asia Pacific's Chris Fordham joins us with their latest findings on fraud and corruption in Asia. And Brit Cham's Neil Orve tells us about their business angel program. Tobias Hexter of Chinese University of Hong Kong is back as guest host. Good morning, Tobias. Good morning, Renita. So Tobias, German Chancellor Angela Merkel has said that her goal is to keep Greece in the euro area. And of course, it's less than three weeks now before this indebted nation's aid program expires. Do you think that things are looking hunky-dory? It looks that even the unsurmountable Frau Merkel finally caved into the fact that nobody dares to play the Greece card. In the end, nobody can really say it's not a Lehman. But uh, after this broadcast, I am going to visit my local HBC branch and try to pull up Greece on them with regards to my mortgage. So you think it's a Lehman? Could it be? Well, nobody. And ex- aside from the bluff in the negotiations, which I fully agree, I support Frau Merkel in her tough stance against Greece, but nobody can rule it out. Nobody can rule it out. that's why everybody's cautious. And uh, our leftist friends in Greece are benefiting from that. All right, I guess we'll just have to keep waiting and watching and sort of see what happens. U.S. stocks and European stocks rebounded from recent sell-offs amid optimism, of course, that Greece will reach a deal with creditors. The Dow closed 236 points higher at 18,000. The S&P 500 and the Nasdaq also climbed about one and a quarter percent to 2,105 and 5,076, respectively. Commodities producers rallied as oil advanced to a 2015 high and gold climbed to the most in four weeks. U.S. oil jumped 2.1% as gold futures added 0.8%. BlackRock uh, head of U.S. credit Jim Keenan discusses the impact of volatility on the markets. We're going through a period of time right now where the economy is improving. There's a lot of sectors in the market that have continued to deleverage. And you're at a point right now where inflation data is starting to move, economic data is starting to move, the dispersion between different economies. And so you are starting to see some volatility pick up in the rates market or fixed income markets around the world. But it's coming off very low levels, and it still remains at low levels. So in the U.S., you're talking about a 2.5% 10-year right now, and, you know, one and three quarters, you know, five-year treasury. 
these are not levels that are necessarily shocking the uh, the economy or going to disrupt significantly. It might create volatility in cross assets and certainly the equity market. But at this point, we're not talking about rates that uh, that would slow the economy in significant form. But what Jim refers to is a completely different scenario as to what might happen were there to be an economic shock. There will be another economic shock, and that can come from a variety of different ways. And what that means from a credit standpoint uh, and liquidity is I think we have to see, and what as regulation evolves, is how how when there is a shock, how is going to be that buffer or the liquidity come back to allow the economy mm-hmm. to you know continue to function during an economic t- uh, downturn? Because it will happen. The World Bank cut its global growth outlook for this year and has urged countries, uh, emerging markets especially, to fasten their seatbelts as they adjust to lower commodity prices and a looming rise in U.S. interest rates. Koshik Basu is the World Bank's chief economist, and he said that the Federal Reserve should hold off on a rate hike until next year to avoid worsening exchange rate volatility and crimping global growth. Hong Kong shares slid after local officials said that they were testing a woman for MERS fever. China stocks declined for a second day after MSCI held off from adding A shares to its benchmark indices. There are still a few things that need to be ironed out. And Hong Kong exchange head Charles Lee talked to Bloomberg's Rishad Salamat about what these few things were. You know, Shenzhen Connect has to happen because that's part of the market that need to be connected, need to be accessed. So that's, you know, that's obviously is the key. Um, but that's, you know, in the progress. The second thing they, uh, I think, uh, uh, you know, clearly, uh, you know, they have uh, discussed is the quota, particularly the daily quota. I think the concern is whether the this daily... is Shenzhen you're talking about. No, no, this, so is, this is the, the whole northbound. Okay. And there's a quota, and then you know, there's a bigger quota, overall quota. You know, there is yep. there are reports that may or may not be eliminated. But the more important thing is the daily quota. I think the concern is if the daily quota is there, if there is an inclusion day or if there is an adjustment day, that was just too much rush into the gate and then that quota obviously is going to be a challenge. That issue, I'm sure over time will get resolved. The issue now today uh, is whether or not um, they are compromises that can be reached before, because China, from, from a government perspective, from a regulatory perspective, obviously quota is there just to regulate the pace so that people don't run too fast on that highway. And the last bit needed for MSCI to include China's A-shares pertains to the nominee rights issue. And that issue obviously has been clarified. The CSRC already published all the rules and the Q&As. I think that it will take time for people to adjust it. But, you know, if inclusion could happen in the coming, let's say, coming quarters um, before the next cycle, you know, the new securities law and, you know, could be potentially be passed in China. And in that new law, there would be clear definition and provision for nominee rights. Tobias, what do you think? Uh, when it comes to MSCI, including China's A-shares, do you think it was a 50-50 shot? I think uh, people should have been already cautious going into this. Uh, the problem with the quota being used was quite an obvious one, as was Shenzhen. But also, if you look at it, aside from the political pressure that China obviously has applied to MSCI, if you would have a full inclusion of everything China-related A-shares into that index, um, all the other emerging markets would also get quietly uh, diluted away. So I think there's also a fundamental question. Do we want this, at this moment, leading emerging market indicator 
uh, to become de facto a China benchmark. Yeah, this is a very interesting point and one that has been the subject of much discussion these last 24 hours. On that note, let's bring in our first guest this morning, John Schofield, who is uh, the director at uh, Tempest Investment Hong Kong. Good morning, John. Good morning, Renita. So, John, what do you make of what Tobias just said uh, about the MSCI Emerging Markets uh, Index de facto becoming the China Index? Uh, yes, I mean the the, the market cap of, um, of of the whole of China would would indeed swamp uh, certainly swamp the regional uh, MSCI Asia ex Japan uh, index. Um, but I assume that, as in the past, that, that it will be phased in. Uh, they won't give full market weighting to um, to the China index. Now, some um, analysts are saying that the fact that MSCI has decided to defer this decision mm. uh, means that China A shares could be negatively affected. Do you agree? Um, well, such a thing as a cur- the curse of the index inclusion. Um, I've seen many uh, many situations in the past where a, a stock, in particular, that's suddenly promoted to the Hang Seng Index, for example, will jump on that day, but. Um, uh, probably we'll then have a, a major correction of about six months. Um, very often it's already or, or in the market. And obviously uh, we've seen the, the A shares are um, you know, massively up, world beating this year. Um, so by the time MSCI you know, get round to including it, we're probably going to be near, near a natural peak in the market anyway. Well, this is just that, I mean, China A shares are so frothy right now. Isn't it better mm. that things settle down a bit before they're actually included? Um, yes, that would be that would be nice, but um, as I say, it, it doesn't tend to to work out that like that in practice. I mean, we've got a sort of apparently sort of unstoppable, self feeding, uh, frenetic bull market going on, um, and in the in the very short term, I don't see anything stopping it. Tobias, uh, but at some point, we will reach um, a natural peak. Yeah, one thing I think in terms of. Uh if, as things look at now, inclusion of A-shares would also almost lead to a guaranteed underperformance. Why on earth should a firm fund manager buy, let's say, PetroChina A-shares if you can get the, ex- the same dividend and otherwise already pertained in the H-shares, trading at a 40% discount? We're not looking just at a frothy market. Uh, price earnings are not my business. I can't have an opinion, even though the umbrella factory trading at 2700 PE is a bit frothy. We're talking about absolute premiums on the A-share market compared to exactly the same thing on the H-shares market. What do you think, John? Uh, yes, I agree. It's, it's a mystery. Um, the, uh, the, the, the premium, the AH premium has uh, hit a, uh, a new recent high. I think it's about a four or five-year high at 42%. I keep expecting, we keep expecting a catch-up rally from, from, from H-shares. And there's nothing to stop that happening in, in technical terms, i.e. because we have this the southbound link or, you know, it's, it's very surprising that the, uh, the fund managers up in China are not, are not buying more. But, um, you know, it, it just shows that the, the, the A-share market is still uh, retail, largely retail-driven and still relatively immature. But this is it. You say it's surprising that the fund managers in China are not actually buying more. But the question is why? I mean, do they just have implicit mm. faith in their own, you know, local shares? Or what is it? Um, uh, to be honest, I don't really know. <laughs> it's just... Uh, um, Peculiarity. It's just, it is. It is. I, I think, you know, there's still probably not sufficient publicity being given to the, to the opportunities uh, on, on the southbound.
Tobias? Yeah, and I wouldn't be surprised. This whole thing launched not too long after Occupy. And the whole thing was a carrot and a stick. Mm. Um, let's open up the conspiracy theories. Now, just wondering. <laughs> okay. um, I, would imagine, I would imagine that at the start of this whole project, because this arbitrage window is open already end of last year and this same massive discount premiums yeah. were available, I think at that moment it was sort of passively discouraged on the northbound of the border side mm. to have all the paperwork and everything done that all the mm. brokers could offer southbound. The total dismal uptake of the quota at that time, I think, was maybe somewhat frustrated in paperwork and other things. Now, at one point, uh, politics is all nice. In the end, if there's a quick buck to be earned, I'm really wondering why people are not going south. So you think this is just one big political maneuver? You never know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, conspiracy theories for a Thursday morning. What do you think, John? Uh, Yes, that's... Well, I... (laughs) I just follow the charts, and, uh, and what I can say is the A shares keep going up, and the uh, the A shares uh, stubbornly refuse to do so, and are just stuck in this uh, this trading range. Uh, we saw a little bit of a sell off yesterday, but I think um, I, sooner or later it will happen. That's uh, that's all I can say. But uh, one caveat: I was just checking that premium uh, back in the, uh, the heady days of t- late two thousand and seven, early two thousand and eight, yeah. peaked at uh, I think it was ninety five percent. Um, so, you know, perhaps we're only halfway there. Okay. Um, John, the World Bank uh, has cut uh, global growth forecast to 2.8%, you know, down from uh, their predicted 3% in January. And uh, Koshik Basu, the chief economist, is urging Janet Yellen to slow down on raising rates. Um, and he's also emerging, uh, warning emerging markets to fasten their seatbelts, you know, quote, unquote. Can you tell us why? Yeah. Uh, well, I think the main, uh, if we look at the U.S. market, uh, which has basically been going nowhere now for about six months, but uh, perhaps surprisingly has, has held up while we've seen some quite um, decent corrections around the world otherwise, um, you've got an almost uh, perfect equilibrium uh, between de- demand and supply, um, which has been, um, you know, on the one hand, U- corporate U.S. earnings have not been that great um, to the direction of monetary policy. I mean, okay, they, they haven't started raising rates yet, but the, the perception is the direction of monetary policy is to tighten. And the stock markets are always uh, always start to be cautious uh, in those uh, those circumstances. Mm. And the strong dollar has been another sort of offsetting factor, which has capped the, um, capped the U.S. market uh, because it's capped, uh, you know, the value of uh, export earnings for, from for the multinationals or overseas earnings. And John, you know, closer to home here, right here in Hong mm. Kong, uh, markets dived, of course, yesterday after reports of a woman being tested for MERS. Yes. Do you sort of think this is just premature panic, or are we headed for more shocks? Uh, no, I think we've just sort of progressively seen uh, corrections, um, as I mentioned earlier, sort of working the way around the around the globe and around the around the region um you know hong kong and china has actually been the standout this year where most of the other markets have have come off quite significantly say for example india which was last year's big winner is down the down some 12 percent uh, this year um i think we're just getting you know we're going through a sort of what i call a rotational correction phase and um in fact we haven't had that good a, we had, the last month or so has been pretty soggy uh, here as well. Um, I think we're probably coming to the end of this phase, but uh, 
you know, just before the end, you will get these little flurries of selling before the market fi- finds its finds its level where new buyers are going to come in. All right, John. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That's John Schofield, and he is the director at Tempest Investment in Hong Kong. The Nikkei is up uh, seven-tenth of a percent to 20,187. Australia's ASX 200 is up two-tenth of a percent to 5,497. And Seoul's Kospi up six-tenth of a percent to 2,063. Having discussed for so long, we can finally get it. Of course we shouldn't stand still. Let's have one person, one vote to have a say in Hong Kong's future. A regime of universal suffrage that complies with the basic law. Five million voters electing the chief executive for the first time. I'm Carrie Lam. For our future, cherish this opportunity. Please support the universal suffrage proposal. 2017. Make it happen. The time is now 8.19 a.m. and EY has just uh, released their 2015 uh, Asia-Pacific Fraud Survey yesterday uh, with results from more than 1,500 respondents from multinational state-owned enterprises and domestic companies across 14 markets in the Asia-Pacific. Let's bring in uh, EY APAC's Managing Partner of Fraud and Investigation uh, and Dispute Services, Chris Fordham. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. Thank you. Good. Uh, thank you for joining us on Money for Nothing. And Chris, uh, what did you find in the survey? Well, there's a couple of key takeaways, we think. Um, the, the first one is the people story, um, which uh, drives the title to our survey, is fraud and, is, it's fraud and bribery turn, driving away talent. We found that in, uh, in Asia-Pacific, 78% of our respondents, so almost 80%, and that number increases to 93% in Hong Kong, would not be willing to work for a company that's been involved in bribery and corruption. Uh, only 3% in Hong Kong, for example, would say that it makes no difference to their willingness to work for a, an organization in those circumstances. Is this a relatively new phenomenon? Well, we think it's the first time that uh, someone's asked a direct question. So it brings in a, a new angle. The, the, normally, the sort of fraud, bribery, corruption discussion is around legal compliance and regulatory inquiry, you know, trying to reduce... Uh, reputational loss, financial damage, management time in, in investigation and remediation. We, we're now saying it's part of a, a talent, a people story. You know, if, if, if companies have at the heart of their growth strategy uh, people, then they need to embed ethics into what they do so as to maintain their talent. And are companies doing anything to change this? Yeah, we we see that there's a, overall there are some increases in the in those companies that have a code of ethics and those companies that have anti-bribery policies, penalties, and training. We've even seen a small increase in companies that have whistleblowing hotlines. Mm. But overall, we still see that there's some issues around um, the. If I could just go back, the, the, the survey um, specifically targets um, people from shop floor and middle management. So we're not we're not talking. Eighty percent of our respondents are from shop floor, if you like. So their, their impressions of whether management would act ethically in uh, difficult economic times uh, gives us some cause for concern. Now, whistleblowing hotlines—that's an interesting one because uh, uh, you know it's been so talked about this, this especially in this last year, uh, with all the various news on you know Snowden and whistleblowing, uh, sort of related news. Let's say how many employees, or what fraction, or what percentage, you know, would actually use this versus just sort of sitting back. 
Yeah, you've hit on one of my very worrying uh, findings, actually. So we did this uh, same similar survey two years ago, and uh, we had a result of about 80% uh, respondents said they would use a whistleblowing hotline. That, mm-hmm. that number has fallen to 53%. That's a drop of about a third, which is really quite concerning. And uh, what the respondents are telling us is that they are concerned about the lack of a legal protection in their country, potentially, mm-hmm. but also uh, whether their report is going to be dealt with uh, confidentially, whether their amenity is going to be maintained. In other words, they, they fear retaliation. And I think to your point, they, they've obviously seen some high-profile whistleblowers and uh, actions against them. Yet this is still coming from employees who are saying that they don't want to work in companies, you know, that uh, indulge in fraud. Well, this is right. So from, from personal experience, um, from the investigations I've done, if, a, if an employee who sees unethical practices and feels unable to report it or feels that a report will go uh, will not be used in an appropriate manner, he, he will leave. He will leave the organization. And obviously, that's a major concern. Tobias, your thoughts? Yeah, I'm always wondering with uh, responder bias in these cases, because if I would go on the street and ask regular people whether they would work for a potentially corrupt company, I get a lot of no's. If I would stand up at the headquarters of a big oil firm, I still get a lot of no's. If I would stand up in the front office of a big Russian oil firm, I still get a lot of no's. I think, and that's the tough part, I think people really want to stand up against corruption. On the other hand, there's mortgage payments, family schools, especially in, in places that are extremely expensive, like Hong Kong. I really hope people would put their ethics first, but we are human. We are human. All right, very interesting indeed. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That's Chris Fordham, and he is EY Asia Pacific's Fraud Investigation and Dispute Managing Partner. Well, for startups here in Hong Kong that are pitching to angel investors, we know this can be a daunting process. And we've had uh, many guests from science and technology startups recently telling us that they often uh, need a prototype before investors are willing to put money in their companies. Um, but they don't have the resources necessarily to create this prototype. So let's bring in Neil Orve. He is the chairman of the British Chamber of Commerce's Business Angel Program to help startups. Good morning. Good morning, Neil. Good morning. So, Neil, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, BritCham's Business Angel program and uh, how it works? Sure. The program started about eight years ago, and it originally came from the IT committee. So I was sitting on that subcommittee, and the suggestion was raised that there's many good IT projects out there that have trouble finding financing. Because if you go back as little as eight years ago in Hong Kong, there really wasn't um, an established angel or early stage funding um, initiative for early stage uh, in, uh, companies. So we thought we would try and put something together using the resources of the chamber. So within the British Chamber, there are many um, investors, many professional advisors. There's a huge amount of resource there. So we really put it together to try and help uh, early stage IT companies. And as I say, we started about eight years ago and we've been going since then and it's just gradually grown. So uh, specific IT focus then, uh, you know, startups in other sort of areas of focus cannot apply? No, certainly not. Uh, Nowadays, IT represents probably no more than 30, 35% of the applications that we get because we're open to absolutely any startup, whatever the industry. Uh, the, the conditions are that it needs to be a Hong Kong company or have Hong Kong directors. It has to have something to do with Hong Kong. So we get applications from around the world now. Um, 
And I think the British Chamber has done a very good job at uh, communicating to the, the, the market that this initiative exists. So sometimes we get applications coming in from Europe, from other parts, from Africa even. And unless there's a strong Hong Kong connection, we won't consider them because we're really there to help build the, uh, the Hong Kong early stage business. Uh, Neil, how many such businesses have you vetted over the years? Well, vetting happens at a number of stages. So the first stage is where we have applications. And for each of the events we hold, we have anywhere between 30 and 50 applications generally. So given that we are coming up to what I believe is our 17th event, 17th or 18th, we've probably had about 1,000 business plans go through our system so far. However, not all of those get to actually pitch to the subcommittee. What we do is the the top 10 to 12 are allowed to actually pitch face-to-face, and then we select the best four to five uh, to go forward to what we call the angel breakfast. So we've probably had about 1,000 applications. We've probably viewed between 150 and 170 of those, and then the top four of each of those, so around about sort of... 70 or so have actually got through to the final stage. And when is this next event and how can our listeners find out more? The next event is going to be on the 23rd of June and then we have the summer break and we'll do another one in November. So we do three a year, typically late March, uh, before the summer and then uh, towards the end of November. To find out more information, you need to contact the British Chamber of Commerce and they'll be happy to send a sheet with the sort of information we're looking for, the business plan um, profile that needs to be put together. We have a, a template that we use to help the subcommittee get through all of the information quickly because, as I say, we normally have quite a lot of applications and this is a non-for-profit. We do not charge for this. It's one of the reasons it's been so successful. Um, We're really there just to help early-stage companies connect with investors and professional advisors that normally they may find it very difficult to to meet. All right, Neil. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Neil Orve is the chairman of the British Chamber of Commerce's Business Angel Programme. The Nikkei is up uh, eight-tenth of a percent now to uh, 20,205. Australia's ASX 200 is also up eight-tenth of a percent to 5,530. And Sol's Kospi up half a percent to 2,061. In currencies, one euro is currently valued at 1.13 US dollars. The US dollar will buy you 123.06 yen. And one pound sterling will buy you 12 Hong Kong dollars and one cent. Gold currency Currently valued at $1,186 per ounce and Brent crude oil at $65.57 per barrel. So, Tobias, here we are. I know you are off to catch a plane. Uh, Tell us quickly before you leave uh, what we should be looking out for the remainder of this week in finance. Um, I think it's going to be all about the interest rate. Um, Even though the markets have paved over any anxiety, we see U.S. 10 years go up, maybe towards the 2.5 level. Uh, we see the German boons go up to 1%. And it's always interesting to see what comes out of Europe. I wouldn't be surprised if we get some nice noises from the Spanish guys in Podemos that they would like to have the same as the Greek guys got. All right, Tobias, thank you so much for joining us. Sure. Tobias Hexter is the adjunct associate professor at uh, of finance, that is, at uh, the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And I'm Renita Malhotrahora, wrapping up for this morning's Money for Nothing. A quick look at the weather forecast for today. It'll be mainly cloudy and hot with a few showers, and there will be a few sunny intervals. The temperature right now is 30 degrees Celsius, and the relative humidity is 81%. 
And here's Sam Butler with the news. South Korea has reported 14 new cases of Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, taking the total to 122. They include a pregnant woman who contracted the virus at the emergency ward of a hospital in Seoul that's been linked to a number of cases. She's in a stable condition. In Hong Kong, health authorities are monitoring four suspected cases of MERS, which were detected at clinics. It's the first time possible cases have been picked up in the community, as Candice Wong reports. Previously, all suspected MERS cases in Hong Kong have been intercepted at the airport. But yesterday, four women were picked up at separate quality healthcare centres around Hong Kong. The suspected cases had all visited South Korea and had fallen ill more than a week after returning to Hong Kong. Altogether, health authorities said there were 33 suspected cases in the 24 hours before noon yesterday. 17 have so far proved negative and no confirmed cases have been found in Hong Kong so far. Myanmar's opposition leader on San Suu Kyi has arrived in China for her first official visit to the country. Radio Australia's Hui Fante reports. The Nobel Peace Laureate arrived at Beijing Airport on Wednesday with a delegation of three. China's foreign ministry spokesman Hong Lei said Aung San Suu Kyi will meet with state and party leaders during her five-day visit. Ms. Suu Kyi's trip is significant because she is a democracy.